<clears throat> Good morning. Good morning, family. We're so glad everyone's here to worship with us this morning. Um, we are continuing our series through the book of Acts, and we'll be starting in the, uh, chapter 8 of Acts, and so you can look in your Bibles and prepare for that as we dig into it. But before we do that, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Dear Father, thank you so much for this morning we can gather together and praise your holy name. Lord, we just pray for everyone here, who everyone's joining us online, everyone who wanted to be here but could not be here. And we just pray for this community of faith, that we can follow you and keep you in our minds and our hearts as we seek to be your disciples, as we seek to be your people, as we seek to make your name known. Lord, I pray for everyone who calls River Valley home if uh, if, you're going through, if they're going through any kind of grief or in pain or anything that's on their minds, we pray that they can bring it to you and know the peace and the comfort that only can come from you. Lord, we love you, we seek you, and pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. It seems like everyone wants to be famous. They want to make much of themselves. You know, I think this has always been the case, but it seems like in our day and age, with the technology we have, it becomes a whole lot easier. We have YouTubers who make millions of dollars by being on YouTube and just doing weird things. We have social media influencers that become a household name because they happen to have good pictures on Instagram. We have all these things where people can make much of themselves and make much of their names and get their names out there so that people know who they are. They're in the business of making themselves great. And I'm willing to bet that we all have felt a little bit that pull if you're on those kind of platforms especially. That we like those likes and we like people share our content and we like the, the notoriety that can, can come when people know who we are and what's going on in our life. I have to admit myself, I have felt that pull because when you're in the business, even as a pastor, when you write stuff or you put stuff out there, you like when people share it or like when people like it. And then you get a little grumpy when people don't like your stuff as much as other people's stuff. And you're like, eh. That's just the human condition. That ever since the beginning, actually, humanity was designed in our DNA to worship God. But when sin came and fractured that relationship, that, that tendency and that nature to worship now has been directed elsewhere. And where is it most prominently directed? It's prominently directed to ourselves. So humanity starts to worship the self, who we are. And so instead of making God's name great, we now make our own names great. We want to make something of ourselves. But... When the gospel grabs hold of someone, when Christ enters the picture, when your life has been reordered to look to Christ, that design is now reestablished and we no longer, as Christians who know Christ, make much of our own names, we make much of His and promote who He is and point to Him that we have a driving passion now to make Jesus known and make His name the name that's famous and His name that will be on people's lips and that people will know Him. But there's still that tension that we have of making our own names great or making Christ's name great. And this is what we see in Acts chapter 8, in part. The gospel expanding and the struggle that happens when people come under Christ's name and part of his family. So if you have your Bibles, I invite you to open up to Acts 8 and we'll be in, starting in verse 1. 
If you don't have your Bibles, do not worry. It will be on the screen as we read this. And we're going to be reading the first 25 verses of Acts 8. So just to put this in perspective, as we're going through Acts, we took a break for Easter. But remember what just happened at the end of Acts chapter 7 is Stephen one of the uh, followers of Christ who was, who was one of those proto-deacons who was serving in church. He was preaching the gospel, and now he has been stoned. And so this is what happened. And, and we see that as he was stoned, that this young man named Saul was kind of giving um, uh, credence to this movement of persecuting church. And so it picks up in Acts chapter 8 this. It says, And Saul approved of his execution, approved of Stephen's execution. And there arose in that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Philip went down to a city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. And the crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip when they heard him and saw the signs that he did. For unclean spirits, crying out with a loud voice, came out of many who had them, and many were, who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was much, much joy in that city. But there, was a man named, but there was a man named Simon who had previously practiced magic in the city and amazed the people of Samaria saying that he himself was someone great, that they all paid attention to him from the least to the greatest, saying, this man is the power of God that is called great. And they paid attention to him because for a long time he had amazed them with his magic. But when they believed Philip, as he preached good news about the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Even Simon himself believed, and after being baptized, he continued with Philip and seeing signs and great miracles he performed performed he was amazed now when the apostles in jerusalem at jerusalem heard that samaria had received the word of god they sent to them peter and john who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the holy spirit for he had not yet fallen on any of them but they had only been baptized in the name of the lord jesus then they laid hands on them and they received the holy spirit now when Simon saw that the Spirit was given through the laying of the apostles' hands, he offered the money, saying, Give me this power also, so that anyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. But Peter said to him, May your silver perish with you, because you thought you could attain the gift of God with money. You have neither part nor lot in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. Repent, therefore, of this wickedness of yours, and pray to the Lord that, if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven of you. If I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and the bond of iniquity. And Simon answered, Pray for me to the Lord that nothing of what you have said may come upon me. Now, when they had testified and spoken the word of God, they returned to Jerusalem, preaching the gospel to many villages of the Samaritans. This passage, this first part of Acts chapter 8, has many parts, but I would sum them up all together, bring them all together by this, that Christ unites us under his great name. For that's what we see here, is that we see 
the gospel being preached, the, the kingdom being expanded is crossing over into Samaria. And now we see that Christ's name takes center stage and that he's uniting all these people together under his name, that where Christ's name is made great and now they're being united into this one body, that now Samaritans and Jews can worship together as brother and sisters, that Christ unites us under his great name. That's what we see in Acts chapter 8. And this first part of the passage, as we read, sets the scene for what is happening. That after Stephen was stoned, that this great persecution arose against the early church. And so it seems like the floodgates were open, so much so that Saul was going house to house, going into house churches and pulling men and women and putting them in jail, for they were preaching the gospel, believing in Jesus Christ. So that the, the disciples, the early church that was now scattered, all except for the apostles, and so they were scattered back throughout the countryside, going into Samaria and into Judea. So this sets up for what is happening in this first part of this passage. But notice that because these disciples were scattered, we start to see the fulfillment of Acts 1.8. If you guys remember Acts 1.8, this is one of the last things Jesus says to the apostles before he ascends up into heaven. He says, but you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all of Judea, in Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Right now, before this, the disciples, the followers of Christ, were just in Jerusalem, maybe a little surrounding villages, it seems like. But now because of this persecution, they were scattered, and now they're in Samaria, in Judea. And so this is the fulfillment of this passage that Jesus promised them, that they were now going to be the witnesses in these areas. And so he moved them into Samaria and all of Judea so that they could witness for Christ. Check that. God used the persecution of the church to fulfill what he was going to do what he said was going to happen. God used this horrible instance of Saul raising people up to pull people out of their homes and throw them in prison, all because they believed in Jesus Christ so that now the gospel will be preached in all of Judea and Samaria. That God actually uses that for his own glory. Which I think there's 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 a huge thing of hope there for us. For we have to remember that Jesus himself promised that he is establishing his church and the gates of hell cannot even prevail against it. And sometimes when we look around at maybe the culture, or maybe we look at the society, or maybe we look at other countries and we wonder, man, what is going on? Is there any hope for the church to expand? There's a tremendous hope because God is telling us in this instance right here that even if people call Christians off to jail, even if persecution breaks out, even if your servants are being stoned in the street, My gospel, God says, will expand, and my church will grow. And I'll even use this evil so that people are sent out and scattered so they cannot help but still declare the glory of God. And so I think there's tremendous hope for us that when persecution or pressure starts coming down upon believers, that is when the church seems to expand all the more. We don't just have to read Acts to know that. You look around the globe, and we know our brothers and sisters who experience persecution causes the church to grow more and more. Just take a look at what happens and happened and is still happening in China. 
where the church experienced persecution and the, and the government really wanted to step it out or then maybe put a veneer that there's going to be these governmental churches. But what happens is that now it's one of the fastest growing churches in the world and it still is because people are sharing the gospel. And God is using that to expand his kingdom. So there's tremendous hope for that. But the scene sets up, this, this first part sets up the scene of what's happening, is that the Christians were scattered. And so Philip is now in Samaria, and he's preaching the gospel. And we have to remember who Philip is. Stephen was one of those seven chosen by the church to serve the church and make sure the widows are taken care of, making sure people are taken care of. And Philip is a person named right after him. He's a servant of the church. He's one of those deacons of the church. He's making sure people are taken care of, but he's also preaching the gospel to people. And we have to know who he is, but I have to confess something. For the longest time, I would read Acts 8, and you see Philip, and you see him in Samaria, you see Philip, and you see him talking to the Ethiopian eunuch that we're going to talk about next week. And I always wondered, why do people know or say that this is Philip, that deacon, and not Philip, the apostle? Because remember that there's a Philip that we don't hear about anymore who was one of the 12, who brought Nathaniel to Jesus. And I always wondered, man, why do people always just assume that this is the deacon and not the apostle? Well, I'll confess this, is because I was not reading the text carefully at all because the text itself said all were scattered except for the apostles so philip the apostles was still in jerusalem but philip the uh deacon or the proto-deacon the servant was sent was left jerusalem and now he was in samaria so this is this encouragement to everyone when you have questions about a text or about something just read it <laughs> and you can and so often the answer is right there in the text for you Oh, wait, it told me why people believe. And that this question, I was like, wow, why is no one answering this question? Because they're like, it's a stupid question. It's in the text itself. So there we go. I, I admit that. Hopefully that encourages you just to read well because the Bible will answer itself. So now back to Philip, the deacon. He is in Samaria and he's preaching the gospel. So much so that God is using them in these great ways that people are listening to his words and they're listening about Jesus Christ and they're seeing these great miracles happening because God is using them to perform these signs and wonders where evil spirits are leaving, where those who are been paralyzed or lame are being healed. And this is what the pattern we see in Acts especially is that when the gospel comes upon a new place, a new scene, God accompanies the proclamation of the word with signs and miracles to show that this is authentic. This is from God. And people are seeing this, and so they're believing. And it says that the men and women of Samaria were looking and listening at Philip and then coming to believe in Jesus Christ and being baptized. That belief and baptism go together. But something odd happens. This is actually a unique experience in the whole book of Acts. It's unique for several ways. One is it's the first time that now the gospel is being proclaimed to Samaritans. It's the first time now that in the book of Acts that we see the gospel leaving the Jewish context and now entering another context of people who are not Jews. So it's unique in that. But it's also unique, and this is the only time in the book of Acts, or I would say probably anywhere else, where we see 
that people believe in Jesus Christ and are baptized, but then it says they do not receive the Holy Spirit. It's the only time we see this. And so it's a unique experience. And we have to wrestle with this because some people look at this and it causes a lot of controversy. Some people look at this and say, well, this means that there are Christians who can believe in Jesus, be baptized, and be full-fledged followers, but yet somehow not have the Holy Spirit. But that seems to fly in the face of the promise that Peter made at Pentecost when he looked upon people and said, believe and be baptized and receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And then again and again, throughout the whole book, we see that belief and baptism and the Holy Spirit, they seem to go together, the package deal. And I, I I'm firmly believe that when you come to know Christ, you receive the Holy Spirit. And I, that, that is true for all Christians. And so what do we do with this text that seems to break that pattern? Well, there's, one, there's a couple of things we do with it. Is, number one, the first thing is that we have to remember that Acts is a history book. It's recording what happened in these churches. And so, there's, to use fancy terms, they might not be that fancy, but it's either prescriptive or descriptive. Meaning, if it's prescriptive, that means it's telling us what should happen, or it's descriptive, it's just telling us what happened. And I believe so often... It's descriptive. It's telling us the history of how the early church expanded. So it's not necessarily saying this is the norm for the Christian life. But you remember that. It's a history book. But at the same time, we have to remember this is the unique experience that this is the first time the gospel was preached to Samaritans. We have to remember who the Samaritans are. The Samaritans and the Jews did not like each other. There was tremendous racism on both sides that divided these two people. The Jews thought they were the true people of God. They still traced their ancestry directly from like Abraham. And so like, we are the Jews. We came back from the exile. We took possession of the land. But when they did, there were people who had been Jews in descent, but they also were mixed with other races, and they were taking some of those customs on. And so we have these, these mixed people that they call Samaritans that lived in this region, and then the, the Jewish people. And so the Jewish people look down upon these Samaritans and saying they claim to be the people of God. They try to act like they're people of God, but they're not the people of God. We're the people of God, the Jews would say. And on the other side, the Samaritans probably said the exact same thing. Come on, guys. We're just like you. We just happen to have mixed ancestry. And so there's this tension. You've got to remember this. Think back to how Jesus in John uh, 4 met the, the, the Samaritan woman at the well and the big kind of scandal that caused. And you can read that in, in this pressure. There's this tension between these two. But this is now the first time the gospel was now going and being proclaimed to people other than Jewish. And this gospel was inviting them in to join the church. The gospel was now crossing a gulf, a boundary that had lasted for centuries. A boundary that had divided people once against the other. And now the gospel was coming across it and now inviting these people into fellowship. What would happen now? Would there be a Jewish church and then a Samaritan church? Would there be would the one true church of Jesus Christ now be divided by along these kind of racial or ethnic lines? No. 
God actually would not allow that to happen. I firmly believe that the hypothesis that God actually withheld the Holy Spirit for the express purpose to bring the apostles down to Samaria so that they could now see these people who believed in Jesus Christ and see them as brothers and sisters and welcome them into fellowship in a profound way that he purposely did that so that it would remove any shadow of doubt that somehow they're not part of the true fellowship of Jesus Christ. That I think it makes sense to read this and see that when we read this, and it seems like there's actually surprise on the on part of Luke writing this, that the apostles looked upon the situation and they say, well, this is not right. People believe and they're baptized and they don't have the Holy Spirit. And so Peter and John hightail it down to Samaria. They say, we got to see what's going on. Something went wrong. Something broke in the normal operation of the gospel being proclaimed. As they came down and then they saw their these people, brothers and sisters, maybe look different, maybe had different traditions, maybe have a different background, but they're brothers and sisters now because they believed in Jesus Christ. And so what did they do? They laid hands upon them, certifying that these were true believers. And so the Holy Spirit came. That we see in here, the gospel unites us. Christ unites us under his great name and this emphasis that the Samaritans and the Jewish people could be one people in Christ. And this is a theme that continues through the book of Acts as then the gospel is now not only proclaimed to Samaritans but also to other people who don't even recognize who God is or have that background that Samaritans might. That Christ unites us under his great name. I can't help but read that account and believe that truth of how Christ is uniting the Samaritans and Jewish people together and not see how it's relevant to our day right now. So often, people want to divide themselves along these lines. Even Christians want to divide themselves along some other affiliation or some other identifying markers. They want to separate based on either race or maybe background or all that. And it's kind of understandable because, you know, birds of a feather flock together and we understand that. But at the same time, we got to be careful because those divisions don't separate us from brother and sisters. It doesn't make different churches. There's only one ch- church in Christ. There's one people in Christ. And we have to remember that when we read this, it's emphasizing how Christ unites us together as a people. We might have different expressions of that people in different communities in different ways, but we're together. We have this identif- identification in Christ that transcends all other trans identification. I love how Vodi Bauckham, a, a pastor and author, puts it like this. He says, the gospel is not something that merely sits on top of our identity. When we come to Christ, our identity is transformed completely. That when we come to know Christ, the first and foremost marker of who we describe ourselves to be is Christ. That's how I, I identify myself. And everything else falls under that, that Christ unites us under his great name. And we see that it's under his name that we're united. That it's not just uniting people from different backgrounds, but now we are united to make much of who he is, which I think is why we now have the story of Simon the Magician to look at and ponder. One of those Samaritans, who heard Philip preach, who saw these great signs, was Simon the Magician, as it's labeled probably in one of your headings. 
he was a man that says, used to do magic. He used to do magic and it wowed the people of Samaria. They looked upon him so much that they say, man, this guy has the power of God, which we call great. And so people argue about what that really means, but you get the sense that people looked upon him and they were amazed by his magic and said, this is like God himself before us. And we see that Simon had an agenda. He was trying to make his own name great. He wanted people to look at him. He wanted people to hang on his word. He wanted people to know him. He was making his name great through this magic. Now, I don't know if he was like a Samaritan David Blaine working some street magic and illusion, or if he was tapping into some supernatural power that he should not have been tapping about into. I don't think that is a point. The point is, somehow, he was doing something that had this appearance of, of greatness, and people were looking at him, thinking he was something he was not. And then comes Simon, I mean, then comes Philip, and he preaches the gospel. And God uses Philip in these great ways, and these signs and miracles were happening, so much so that Simon, who amazed people, now looked upon what Philip was doing, or what God was doing for Philip, and was amazed and said, man, I believe this is something more powerful than anything else I ever did. And so it says he believed, and he too was baptized. But there's some question about why did he believe and how deep that actually went, because he was baptized, but... He seemed to be still focusing on his power, seems to be still focusing on making his name great. And why do I say that? Well, because when Peter and John came down and laid hands on the Samaritans and they received the Holy Spirit, what is Simon's first response? I want that. Check that. He doesn't want the Holy Spirit, which would have been his if he was a believer. No, what did he want? He wanted the power to be able to lay hands on people and give them the Holy Spirit. He wanted that gift. He wanted that power. He wanted something to make himself great again. He's like, man, I was convinced that Philip was, had more power than I, but look at this. This seems amazing, and I could truly be great if I had that power, so much so that he offers to buy it. And we see Peter's response. May your silver perish with me. You have no lot in this matter, Peter says. You, your heart is not right with God. You are still thinking about yourself rather than about making Christ known. You're focused on that. And so it seems to be that Peter's condemning him and his motives and saying, watch yourself, check yourself, for you're still living for yourself. But Christ unites us under his great name. Why Simon was trying to make his name great, he didn't understand the truth of Christianity that when we come to know Christ, we start making much of him. So this is a great warning for us, I think, that when we look at Christ and we look at us following Christ, are we only following Christ for the benefits? Are we only following Christ for what we get out of it? Are we following because we believe and know him? It's a warning to check our motives to make sure we're making much of him. Christ unites us under his great name. But I love this. This doesn't leave us hanging. Well, it kind of does. But it doesn't just leave us without hope. That's, that's a better way of saying it. Because Simon, the magician, receives the rebuke of Peter. And what is his response? Pray for me. Pray for me that this is not true. Pray for me that what you just said is going to happen does not happen 
to me. I think there's tremendous hope here for when Peter says, your heart is not right for God. He, Simon's response, pray for me. Make my heart right for God. Hopefully God can make my heart right for you. And so I think there's this tremendous hope here that repentance is always offered. That Simon the magician could come to know God. That Simon the magician could come to know and receive the Holy Spirit. And we all need to hear this. Why? Because we all mess up. And when we examine ourselves, we're like, my motives are not pure. So often I wake up and yes, I'm following Christ because I know the benefits and I struggle to love him and I struggle to see the why and I struggle to understand how he's moving this world. And you have that angst. And this is, we need to hear this because it's not about you. Our hope is not on how well we can follow or how well we can get our motives together. Our hope is in Jesus Christ and that there's always repentance offered. That when you mess up and you go astray, he's always there welcoming us back. And that we have this hope that we can follow again and know him. Martin Luther said the Christian life is one of repentance. That's true because we repent again and again. This is not to think that somehow if we die without repenting or if we go all astray and don't repent that we're estranged from God. No, Christ has done it all and he brings us back. But it's a reminder that when we feel distant from God, so often it's because we've turned away and he's still there. And that repentance, this is the way to look back to him and know how he's working in your life. So if you have tried to make it on your own, I beg you, Come to know Christ through Jesus. If you feel alone and estranged from God, repent and turn back to Him. If you have yet to know who God is through Jesus Christ, I would say now is the chance. Look to Him, repent, and come to know Him. Know that you can be united with God's people through Christ. Because Christ unites us under His great name. He brings us into God's family. And so we see that hope has left us as always a good sign. Because Christ unites us together in one family under his name for the glory of God. So we read this text, we say, well, what do we do with it? How does it apply to our lives? And I just want to hit some, some things really fast that we've already talked about, maybe hit them, but just think about them a little bit more about what this means for us. That we need to see the power of God, or God's power of unity in Christ. That in the Christian church, there should not be a smidgen of racism. There should not be a smidgen of something that divides us against brother and sister. That when we look at our brothers and sisters, we see each other as Christ followers first and foremost. That when humanity, we try to divide ourselves into different camps and different categories, and we try to do that, that Christ comes and says, this is all mine. People from every country, every tongue, every nation are mine. People from every political affiliation are mine. People from every denomination are mine. People from everything we try to separate, Christ says, they are mine if they believe in me. And this identity I give them supersedes anything they want to divide themselves from each other. And so when we see the, Christ, the power of Christ, we see the uni unity there. That he brings us together into one people. That we can look at our church that preached the gospel 
that might be on a different side of town might look differently, might have different traditions, might operate on a Sunday morning differently. But what do we see? We see brothers and sisters in Christ who are worshiping God with us. So we need to see the power of the unity of Christ. We need to see the power of the unity of Christ so much so that we see that the church can expand no matter what. That when hardship comes our way or when we look around the world and we're confused about why he's allowing something to happen, we need to know that God uses all these things, weaves them all together in this beautiful tapestry where he's going to make his kingdom expand. People are going to come to know who he is and and the gospel is going to be proclaimed. So we don't need to be Debbie Downers. We look around and we're like, how could we possibly do well in this circumstance? We need to be the reality of pain and hardship are there, and we might not like how things happen, but we never need to doubt the power of God to expand his church, the power of God to proclaim the gospel, the power of God for his kingdom to keep going, that the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Turning inwardly, we look at this passage, and we need to look at Simon and see our own tendencies to be like Simon, the magician, and repent of those. Not look to ourselves, but look to Jesus. Not to look to our own, our own making ourselves great, but look to make his name great, that we need to check our motives and see how we're following and, and follow as well as we can. And alongside that, realize it's never too late to repent. As long as you have breath, as long as you have a moment, you can repent that we don't need to be too proud. We don't need to put it off. We need to turn back to God and trust in that faith we have in Jesus Christ so we repent of where we have gone astray. We repent of how we've tried to take it in our life in our own hands and done our own thing. We repent of those, these things and focus on our Lord. Christ unites us under his great name. We need to realize that truth that that is now who we are. I couldn't get this quote out of my mind when I was preparing for the sermon by Dietrich Bonhoeffer. If you don't know who he was, he was a German theologian and pastor. He was killed by the Nazis towards the end of World War II. Uh, but he wrote a book. One of his book was all about discipleship and, and the life of Christ. And he, he says this, When Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. He's referencing how when Christ calls people, he, he bids us to take up a cross daily and surrender and follow him. That when we come to know Christ, we actually put our prerogatives, we put our, our, our looking for our own identity in ourselves aside and we look to him and him foremost for life, for what we're going to do, for our understanding, for our identity. And so when Christ calls us, we put to death everything that would keep us from him. Put to death everything that would divide us from one another. And we look to Christ because Christ unites us under his great name. Show me in prayer. Dear Father, thank you so much for your word. That we can read it, we can know it, we can know you through it. That we can see how your early church operated. We can understand how you have moved through this early church to bring people to you through Jesus Christ. Lord, I pray for everyone here, everyone who calls River Valley their home, everyone who knows you. I pray for them to take encouragement of their identity in you and know how that transforms them and it changes their motives, it changes their affections, it changes everything about them that they can focus on who you are and what you have done for them. 
I pray for anyone who does not know Jesus, that they can know him, look to him, and see him, and be enticed, and, and take that step of evening just asking questions so that they can see this is offered for them too, that they can know him and be forever changed. Lord, we love you. We seek you and pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you, Adam. Um, let's stand up, everybody, and praise our merciful Lord. Um, thank God that we can be united in Christ in such a confusing time sometimes where people try to define themselves by their identities of this world. Let us uh, be a church that defines ourselves in Christ. This one's uh, His Mercy is More. <laughs>